Hey, everybody, it's Ed. Real quick before we get started, four brand new podcast supporters that I want to say thank you to. Romy Swanson, Carrie Darrington, John Dunaway, and Becca Aceto. These four folks signed up to support the podcast via Patreon. You can go to mountainandprairie.com slash support to check out all the options if you're interested. And you can also see a really long list of everybody who has generously supported it. It's really, really amazing to me. It means a lot. So thanks to everybody on that list. Second thing, the Bozeman event is coming up in like a week and a half. Um, I hope to see a bunch of you there. I've gotten messages from a good number of you that you're going to be there. It's going to be a really, really fun evening. You can go to mountainprairie.com slash Bozeman to check out all the details. Thanks a lot. Hey, this is Ed Robertson, and this is the Mountain and Prairie Podcast, where I introduce you to some of the innovative individuals who are shaping the future of the American West. I meet most of these people through my work in land conservation or through my hobbies and interests that revolve around spending time up high in the mountains. My guests include ranchers, writers, entrepreneurs, conservationists, athletes, artists, adventurers, pretty much anyone who's doing important work, has an interesting story, and loves the American West. My guest today is Emmeline Ostlin. Emmeline is a Wyoming-based journalist and storyteller whose work focuses on the landscapes, natural resources, and communities of the American West. She may be best known for her work studying and documenting the long-distance migration of pronghorn antelope from Grand Teton National Park down into the Green River Valley, a topic that was the basis for her graduate school thesis as well as her award-winning high country news cover story called Path of the Pronghorn. Emmeline is also the editor of Western Confluence, an amazingly informative, entertaining, and free magazine published by the University of Wyoming. And if all that isn't enough, she's also working closely on the production of an upcoming documentary called Deer 139, which tells the story of a mule deer's migration across Wyoming and a researcher's attempt to follow that same path on foot. Emmeline grew up at the base of the Bighorn Mountains in Wyoming. She's a third-generation Wyoming native from a family closely connected to ranching and the land. After earning her undergraduate degree from the University of Wyoming, she landed a job in Washington, D.C. with National Geographic, where she learned firsthand the power of storytelling as a means of communicating important, complex issues. She returned to the University of Wyoming for a graduate degree in creative nonfiction writing, with a focus on understanding and documenting pronghorn's migration patterns throughout her home state. Along with photographer Joe Reese, they explored the mountains of the greater Yellowstone ecosystem, shedding light on one of the lower 48's last remaining big-game migration corridors. If you've enjoyed my conversation with folks like Dan Flores and Bryce Andrews, then you'll surely love this episode. We dig deep into the specifics of pronghorns and discuss why they're one of the more interesting and impressive North American mammals. We talk about how Emmeline initially became interested in pronghorn migrations and how the project began and played out over several years. We also talk about her current work editing Western Confluence and the role that the magazine plays in communicating important issues in the West. As you'd expect, we talk about her upbringing in Wyoming, her career path into storytelling, and she offers some great advice for aspiring journalists who'd like to follow a similar path. And of course, we talk about favorite books, so be sure to check out the episode notes for links to all those. There are a lot of new titles in this episode. 
If you haven't already, I encourage you to subscribe to Western Confluence. It's totally free, which is quite a deal when you consider just how much you'll learn from reading it. There's a link to the magazine in the episode notes, as well as a link to the Deer 139 film. Check them all out, and I hope you enjoy this educational and fun conversation with Emmeline Ostland. Well, maybe the the best place to start is talk about you and you growing up there in Wyoming, because I, I lived in Jackson for a while, and very few people in that area are from there, but it sounds like your family's been been in Wyoming for quite a while. So could you just maybe talk a little bit about your Wyoming roots and where you grew up and all that kind of stuff? Yeah. Uh, my paternal grandmother was born in Sheridan, Wyoming in 1927, and that's about as far back as my family goes in the state. Mm-hmm. I was actually born in Hardin, Montana. My parents at the time worked for the Padlock Ranch, which is yeah. a just a huge ranch that sprawls the Wyoming-Montana border. Um, And just a few weeks after I was born, they moved to a different cow camp on the padlock on the Wyoming side of the border, and that's where my brother was born and everything. So we lived there until I was about five years old. My dad, you know, was a ranch hand. He was feeding hay in the winter, moving cattle pasture to pasture, branding, weaning, all those kinds of things. And my mom cooked for the bunkhouse mostly and took care of my brother and me. Um, and then when I was ready to start kindergarten, they thought it'd be good to get a little bit closer to town. So we moved closer to Sheridan and ended up eventually in the little town of Bighorn outside of Sheridan. That's, that's where I grew up, went through school and graduated. And, um, and yeah, that's my home place. It's a really beautiful part of the state. We spent a lot of time as a family backpacking in the Bighorn Mountains and the Cloud Peak Wilderness yep. when I was a kid and um, and just a lot of time outdoors. So I really grew to love the sometimes austere Wyoming landscape yeah. <laughs> and, you know, everything from the, the sagebrush and the cottonwood river bottoms to the alpine areas in the mountains. Um, but definitely the landscape of Wyoming it has been very formative to me and made a big impression on kind of who I am and how I see the world. The bighorns are just spectacular. And I think a lot of people don't know about them, which is probably why they're so spectacular because they haven't been overrun. But that, I think that's one of the most unique areas I've ever been anywhere in the West. And it's, you know, it's pretty, I mean, I'm sure you've seen a lot of change, but, but compared to a lot of the places out here, they've, it stayed pretty low key and it's man, what a, what a great place to be from. So, what what sparked your initial interest in storytelling and journalism and and like when you look at where your career has taken you looking back as a kid you know was there that interest in place when you were when you were a little kid not exactly a journalism but i was definitely always really interested in reading stories and writing stories and i went to a camp for kids who were interested in writing when oh, really? I was in high school That's in cool. uh, in the little town of Story, Wyoming, just south of Sheridan. And and then when I got to college at the University of Wyoming, I took some creative writing classes along with uh, environmental studies and art and Spanish and all sorts of things. Um, So I was always interested in writing and storytelling. It wasn't until after college when I moved to Washington, D.C. and got a job 
in the photo department at National Geographic magazine that I started to see how my interests in the outdoors and the environment and science and storytelling and writing could all come together in the form of journalism. And, you know, National Geographic is one of the most famous magazines in the world. So being there and working on the stories and meeting the editors and seeing the the articles come together um, really gave me the sense that powerful storytelling can make a difference for how people live on the planet. I mean, National Geographic does a story about uh, poaching in a park in Africa. That shifts the needle. It, it, it changes the reality on the ground to have that kind of story done. So that was a, a pretty big lesson for me to see how the art and craft of photography and powerful narrative could make a difference in the world. Um, uh, And one of the pretty cool experiences I got to have when I was at National Geographic was that I met a photographer named Steve Winters, who was assigned to do a story about snow leopards in India. Uh And I, I basically volunteered to be his camera assistant for that assignment. Good move. I would have done the same. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah. So I went to Northern India to Ladakh with him for two months and we set up camera traps and uh, basically lived in a camp in a national park way up above 13,000 feet in the mountains and looked for snow leopards. And it was a pretty mind blowing experience Um, and really fascinating to see the amount of work that goes into the photos alone, not to mention the writing for one of those stories. That's super cool. But I want to back up real quick because I'm going to ask the question that I'm sure a lot of people, especially college age people are asking is, how did you get that job straight out of college? Because I would guess there's a line out the door for that, for that type of job. How did that come about? Yeah, well, I finished college and I had this kind of weird humanities, fine arts degree with some environmental studies that I didn't have any plan for. And I was, I was a little bit adrift. I just wasn't sure what was next. I had taken all the classes that were exciting to me in college, but not with any sort of vision of where it was going to take me. And I, I first went to DC as an intern for an environmental consulting group that had an office in Wyoming as well. So that was my, my connection and my way to get to DC. Yep. Um, And, you know, one of the things about being from a place like Wyoming, which has the smallest population of any of the U.S. states, is when you go somewhere like D.C. and say you're from Wyoming, anyone who knows anyone else from Wyoming in D.C. will connect you and introduce you. And I, through that connection, you know, met a woman who worked at National Geographic and she forwarded the job announcement to me and it just happened to be a really good fit for what I had studied and what my interests were. And, um, I, I had no idea that anything like that existed before I saw that job announcement. Yeah. And, um, so part of it was the connection of being able to meet someone from my home state in a city far away. And, and part of it was that I had pursued stuff I was really passionate about in school. And then when there was a job that matched those interests, I did feel really qualified for it and excited about it. That's really cool. And so 
So you you were there and you, you got to go on some adventures and then what when did you kind of I'm assuming at some point you went you went freelance because you've done a lot of work for High Country News and a lot of other magazines. What what was the path from I guess from Nash from DC until you started working on the the prong horde migrations? Yeah, I I could have stayed at that National Geographic job indefinitely. I mean, it wasn't an internship or anything. It was yeah. a real career track yeah. job. But I was homesick in sure. DC. <laughs> I didn't feel DC's good rough. living in that city. Um, you know, I'm glad I had that experience. I think it was really valuable for me to live there and experience it. But I was really looking for ways to get back to the West. And I, it seemed like my best opportunity to do that was to apply to graduate school. Mm-hmm. So I actually, when I was at National Geographic, I saw a presentation by a fellow named Karsten Hewer, who had just followed the migration path of the porcupine caribou herd through Alaska. Uh And he had photos and video clips from that project and talked about the threats to the migration and what he had learned by, you know, tracing that journey on foot, on ski and rafting across the rivers with his wife in this, I can't remember exactly. It was like a more than 12 month journey over 1500 miles or something. Wow. It was the most inspiring thing I'd ever seen, and it made me more homesick than ever for the mountains (laughs) and plains of the West. And uh, right after I saw his talk at at the National Geographic headquarters, I came across a little news article about a pronghorn migration in western Wyoming from Grand Teton National Park down into the Green River Basin. Mm -hmm. And some scientists had just published a paper uh, about three bottlenecks in that migration corridor where it was at risk of being pinched off basically by development or really vulnerable places in the migration corridor. And that kind of triggered this idea that I could do a graduate school project following that migration path on foot to try to understand the threats to the migration corridor and sort of how those animals experience the landscape and what it what it meant for the pronghorn to have this connected strip of wildlands between the Green River Basin and the Teton Range. So I ended up coming back to the University of Wyoming to do a MFA in creative nonfiction writing with environment and natural resources. And that pronghorn migration project became the focus of my graduate work and the subject of my thesis. That's really cool. So when you were applying to to grad school, did you did you come to them with this idea or did you just apply and then once you were there started focusing on the idea because it seems like it seems like you kind of had it in your in your mind before before you even got in. Is that what did they think about that? Yeah, I did have that idea in mind as I was applying to graduate school. And I think the, I I applied to a few different programs in the West Uh and it seemed like all of them were interested in and receptive to that project idea. Yeah. Uh, So I think it helped me get the graduate programs. Yeah. Um, And I also, you know, getting a graduate degree in creative writing is kind of a, 
it's kind of a weird thing to do. Like you sort of can't learn creative writing in a classroom. Yeah. You just got to do it. (laughs) You just have to do it. Um, and having a very specific project like that, that I was fired up about and that I thought could sustain a whole graduate project, I think made the grad school experience a lot more successful for me than it would have been without a project like that in mind. Yeah, I would think so. I mean, because I, I went to grad school as well, and, and but mine was just general, you know, MBA, and it's just, oh, let's learn about business versus mm-hmm. coming in there with a very specific goal and kind of focusing all mm-hmm. your energy on that. That's that's really cool. Did Does Mark Jenkins, the, the outside contributor and author, does he teach at University of Wyoming? Yeah, he does. He he is affiliated with the creative writing program and served on my thesis committee. So I love that guy's work. That project. Yeah. He's yeah, a wild too. man. <laughs> he's he's a good friend too. He um helped out at that outdoor program at the University of Wyoming where yeah. I worked and you know, I've run into him at the climbing crags and things like that. So yeah, he's a good guy. That's that's great. Well, maybe let's just dive into the into the project because I think it, you, you've done so much. Um, but I guess this the the thesis kind of culminated in this public um, article in High Country News, Path of the Prong, Pronghorn, that got a lot of attention and won you some awards. And it's just such a interesting um, summary of your work. Can you can you just talk a little bit about the project and and how it went and, and what you learned? Definitely. Uh, so first of all, I, I ended up teaming up on this project with a friend of mine who was at the time an undergraduate student at the University of Wyoming named Joe Reese. Yeah. He, he's from South Dakota and was really interested in wildlife photojournalism and photography. And he had done a cool project, photography project on the Missouri River and was kind of looking for the next the next project. And so one fall weekend, Joe and I drove up to Grand Teton National Park and tried to figure out where this pronghorn herd was and where they were going to go, how they were going to get into the mountains, what drainages they were going to cross. We had a little bit of information from the scientific paper that had been published, but it was it was pretty vague. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually what happened was we drove all the way up the Grovant River, which there's a there's a dirt road leading out of Grand Teton National Park into the Grovant Mountains. Yep. And Joe dropped me off there and I started walking and he he drove back out the Grovant River down through Jackson, through Hoback Canyon, around almost to Pinedale, and then up the Green River. And the idea was that I was just gonna meet him on the other side. <laughs> there are a lot of bears back there too. <laughs> so yeah, I didn't it wasn't that successful of a <laughs> of a experience you know, exploration as far as figuring out the migration. But well after dark, we did actually, I saw his, his headlights of his little car. He was stuck way down the road and I was kind of wading through mud and rocks and we eventually met up again. So it, it sort of worked out. That's kind of how the project got started. The next morning we were headed back to Laramie and we stopped at this intersection of the Cora Highway and the highway from Pinedale to Jackson is called mm-hmm. the Cora Y. And I recognized it uh, from a description in the paper about the pronghorn migration as one of the bottlenecks. And we just pulled over there to kind of look around and noticed up and up to the north in the distance, a little band of pronghorn headed our way. So we kind of hunkered down in the sagebrush and about 20 minutes later, 
they came right to where we were. They ducked under the fence, crossed the highway, ducked the next right away fence and came right past us. And that was such a powerful moment. It was like, okay, that's what migration looks like. It really happens. There's animals out here on the landscape going in a predictable direction and they are facing obstacles and challenges along the way. And I think for both of us, that was the moment that made us feel like this is a project worth doing. There's something to see here. And it's something that a lot of people have never seen before. Um, I know Joe said that when we started talking about this, he did a Google image search for pronghorn migration Mm -hmm. and there, there was nothing. There were no photos of pronghorn migration. No one had ever really seen it or documented it that way before. Um, so that, that was the fall of 2007. And then over the next couple of years, every spring and fall, Joe and I were just back in that area, either, um, sometimes we were hiking around together, but usually he was out setting remote cameras in key places. And I would do a through hike of the corridor and try to try to understand how the animals were using that landscape and what challenges they were coming up against and how they might navigate those. And just, yeah, what, what does it feel like to walk for 80 miles across Western Wyoming and cross a bunch of rivers and highways and go through some natural gas development fields and a national park and some subdivisions and, uh, what does it mean to have that kind of migration corridor that's actually still connected in today's world, even though it's vulnerable to landscape changes that are happening everywhere? Before we go any further, could you just talk a little bit about the pronghorn as a as a species? Because there, in your in your article in High Country News, there's just some great facts about the animal that I think a lot of people who aren't from the West or don't live in the West don't don't fully appreciate what a cool animal it is and then also is it pronghorn or is it antelope which one what's the what's the real word what's the real the real yeah. term uh the, the scientific name is antelocapra americana which means translates essentially into american antelope mm-hmm. but a lot of biologists consider antelope to be this category of species that lives in africa that are not really that closely related on the tree of life to the american pronghorn antelope. So pronghorn is a more technically correct term, but again, antelope is part of their Latin name and colloquially people in the West call them antelope. Yeah. um, Just the way we call bison buffalo. So I I would hesitate to say it's wrong to say antelope. (laughs) I think both terms can describe that animal pretty well. And they are super interesting. I mean, I always thought they were unusual and beautiful, delicate little creatures before I started this project, but I didn't realize just how strange and unique they are uh, taxonomically. They kind of look like deer, but they're really not related to deer at all. They are the sole remnant species of a whole... uh, family of species that lived here in prehistoric times. So there used to be all different kinds of antelope on this landscape around the time when there were giant running bears and saber-toothed tigers and dire wolves and those kinds of species. There were antelope with 
horns that forked in all directions and spiraling horns. And the remains of these different antelope have been found in various caves and tar pits around Western North America to kind of paint a picture of that whole uh, group of animals. And so this, the pronghorn antelope that we have in Wyoming and in the Western United States today are the last remaining species from that, that whole group. Um, and they, like I said, they're not really related to deer. Mm -hmm. If anything, they're related more closely to giraffes, but they have huge lungs and hearts relative to their body size compared to other similar species. And they can sprint at 60 miles an hour, which today means they outrun all other land animals in this part of the world by a solid 15 miles an hour. I mean, Mm -hmm. they're just way, way faster than anything else that lives today. Um, But there's some speculation that maybe they gain the skills to run so fast because they evolved in a period when there were a lot faster and scarier predators that they needed to escape from. Yeah. Um, they have really powerful eyesight. Their fawns can outrun a coyote at two weeks of age. Um, and yeah, they make these long distance migrations in rare cases like the, the Teton population that does that just setting out across country and going mile after mile after mile. It's pretty amazing. Have you read American Serengeti by Dan Flores? I'm guessing you have. Actually, no, I haven't. I'll oh, have really? To look into that one. Yeah, it's really good. It's it's um, uh, a relatively short book, and he highlights some of the the history of some of the big, the last remaining big mammals um, in the in the West, and okay. pronghorn is one of them. And he gives a really good, and probably like twenty or twenty five pages, a really good overview of their history, and you know, basically. Uh, goes into 25 pages worth of, of um, uh, breaking down some of the things you just discussed. And it's a, for people that want to learn more about it without reading 300 pages on it, that's a, that's a good place to start. Um, so, so after, after y'all went out and, and figured out, um, you know, kind of, all right, these, these guys, these animals are migrating and you start documenting it. When, when you finally got the, the finished product, I guess the, the thesis, was was that how did that go over I me mean, was it a surprise to people or what did it confirm what the the general community already knew or what was the re- reception when you presented this yeah uh so i i wrote it up into my thesis and uh, worked on the high country news piece but i think maybe the most powerful outreach piece from the whole project was that Joe, the photographer and I put together kind of a multimedia presentation with some maps and a bunch of his photos and some video clips. And, um, we took it around Wyoming to a bunch of little communities and gave this presentation, told, told the story of what we had seen in the migration corridor. And people were really interested in that. Mm -hmm. There was a really positive response and it was like, people kind of knew that these animals moved around at different times a year and they had relationships to the animals that lived, you know, in the field behind their house or that the ones they saw on the drive to work every day, but they didn't have this whole picture of the year round cycle of the distances the animals were covering and 
and the things they came up against in those journeys and the rivers they had to cross. And Joe and I both observed lots of antelopes swimming across rivers, which is just so surprising to see because they have such skinny little legs and tiny yeah. hooves. You'd never think they could, you know, paddle the Green River during spring runoff, but they sure do. Um, and it, it kind of felt like it just put the, the story of pronghorn migration into the public consciousness in the state mm -hmm. that people were aware of it. They were talking about it. They were looking at Joe's photos. He had photo exhibit. Um, and for years after that, people would come up to me and say, oh, I saw you give the pronghorn migration talk, yeah. <laughs> which was just kind of fun to, it really did feel like it it kind of grew legs of its own and that story sort of spread out across the state and, and got into the minds of people everywhere from, you know, the little town of Cora that the migration goes past all the way to Cheyenne where state agencies are deciding whether to put funding toward wildlife highway crossing structures and, um, and lots of conservation groups got involved and were involved before Joe and I even did this project and I think felt some of the benefits of having that story kind of on the radar in Wyoming and people being aware of it as a, as a way to support their work as well. Um, so when you think about the, the migration corridor, I used to do a lot of work in that area around Pinedale when I was in the ranch brokerage business. And unfortunately it's, it's getting more and more subdivided. It seems like every year I hadn't been up there in probably seven or eight years. And I drove through recently, uh, like up through Pinedale towards Jackson. And it was even more developed than it was back when I was there. And so thinking about all those fences going up and, and then the oil and gas development in that area. And, you know, what are, what are some steps that can be taken? Like say, for example, ranchers, whether it's, it's real agricultural producers or people that just own ranches, what, are there any things that they can do that, that would, uh, allow these animals to move freely? Like, is there a certain type of fencing they could use or, or any, any mm -hmm. types of recommendations like that? Yeah, definitely. I think one of the takeaways from that project for Joe and myself was this idea that we can share the landscapes where we live and make our daily lives with the wildlife that use those places as well. And uh, kind of the most dramatic solution for helping animals move through places that are occupied by people is uh, the highway crossing structures. And YDOT did fund some multi-million dollar overpasses that were the first ever built for pronghorn antelope. Um, and that was hugely successful project that made the highway much safer for drivers as well as helping the animals get through. But at the same time, there are a lot simpler projects that everyday people can do as well. And like you mentioned, the fencing is, a, is really challenging for pronghorn, especially they don't jump as well as deer. And if snow piles up against a fence, it can just make it totally impassable to them. Mm -hmm. So there have been a lot of efforts in that area to replace sheep fences and barbed wire fences that are challenging for migrating pronghorn antelope with more wildlife-friendly models that have uh, a smooth wire at the bottom that's at least 16 inches above the ground, which leaves room for the antelope to go underneath. Um, and 
Yeah, there have been, there's been big partnerships between conservation groups and even the energy industry providing some funding and ranchers to retrofit probably hundreds of miles of fence in that area, which does really matter. It really makes a difference. And there's also groups that are just removing unnecessary fences. You know, sometimes there were really old fences that just aren't needed anymore and they're kind of a tangled mess of wires and getting all that out of the way really helps too. And then uh, there are some ranchers in that area who just open their gates Mm -hmm. during the time of year that the migration is happening. You know, if there's not livestock that needs to be contained during those particular weeks in the spring and fall when the wildlife is moving through, that can really make a difference for the animals. Um, And then Another tool that's been, I think, really important, like you're talking about the subdivision that goes on up there, and there's there really has been a lot of development. Pinedale's almost kind of a bedroom community for Jackson, and yeah. it's a really beautiful part of the state. So there's there's a lot of people moving there, and there's a lot of building and development going on. But um, there are landowners who have put their private lands into conservation easement, which is a really powerful tool to prevent that kind of future development that can just totally cut off a migration corridor with one one development. So um, yeah, those conservation easements, I think, have been a key part of the puzzle up there too. Um, and it's, you know, protecting migration corridors is an interesting challenge. I think historically, we're used to protecting lands by drawing an outline around the place we want to protect and setting it aside as a a park or a wilderness area or a, you know, a forest reserve or something like that. And you just can't do it with a migration corridor because these animals are crossing Bureau of Land Management lands, state lands, national forest lands, national park lands, not to mention private lands owned by hundreds of different landowners. So it's really presented uh, a good conservation challenge that takes some some creativity and some collaboration and some new problem solving to figure out how to keep our landscapes intact and make it so these animals can move through from one end to the other every spring and fall. And, um, you know, that's critical to them sustaining their populations and being part of this landscape where we really value having wild animals that we can see throughout the year out on our landscapes. Well, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but it, it seems like Wyoming is one of the last places where this is in the lower 48, at least where, where this is even an option. I mean, it, cause I, you know, it seems like every other, every other major corridor where this would work has been developed over or there are highways everywhere. And Wyoming is one of the last few wide open spots where this is an option. Is that, is that correct? I think there's some truth to that. Um, In the last couple of decades, the technology that scientists use to study these migrations has really advanced. Mm -hmm. So they're putting GPS collars on migratory animals, pronghorn as well as mule deer and elk and bison and moose and all kinds of species. And, you know, just just really in the last couple of decades, those collars have gotten much lighter and more precise with better battery life. So we've kind of had this renaissance of migration research and for the first time have a much clearer picture of where these migrations occur and how long they are and 
what kind of landscapes the animals are using and the time of year they move and everything. And there are other long distance wildlife migrations in the Western United States in Colorado and Montana and Idaho, et cetera. But certainly this, the greater Yellowstone ecosystem is the heart of it. That's, that's, I would say the core of the area where, yeah, the last really big remaining intact land animal migrations are happening in the continental United States. And uh, researchers there have documented not just this 80 to 100 mile long pronghorn migration that I was hiking, but 150 mile long mule deer migration from the Red Desert up into the Hoback Basin. And then they they got a collar on one mule deer just recently who went way, way farther than that, all the way up into Idaho from the Red Desert. And, oh, wow. Um, there's just kind of new discoveries like that happening all the time. There's, um, we're getting a more and more complete picture of what this migratory landscape looks like as the science advances. And it's all pretty new and pretty exciting and kind of shifting the way we understand the greater Yellowstone ecosystem as reaching well beyond the boundaries of Yellowstone National Park into the, the surrounding lower elevation sagebrush winter ranges. Well, and maybe that's a good transition to talk about the film you've been working on deer 139 about mule deer. Could you talk about that a little bit about where just maybe the the overview of the film and then when it's coming out and all that kind of stuff? Yeah, I was really lucky to team up with a research scientist here at the university of Wyoming named Samantha Dwinell. Mm -hmm. And she has been, sort of the project manager under Professor Kevin Monteith on the Wyoming Range mule deer research for several years, more than six years, I think. And she got this idea that it would be valuable to tell the story of the Wyoming Range mule deer migration in a documentary format. And what she wanted to do was hike sort of like I did in the pronghorn migration corridor, but hike the migration path of one of her study animals. So she looked through all the data sets that she has of these collared animals that have been part of the research over the last several years and identified deer 139, who doesn't have necessarily the longest mule deer migration path in Wyoming, but she has a pretty cool migration corridor that starts out in the natural gas fields and the sagebrush step of the Green River Basin and then winds up and down the foothills of the Wyoming Range to the north for a long distance, then climbs up into the Wyoming Range over a pass down to the Grays River and then up into the Salt River Range over another pass and ends at this alpine cirque overlooking Idaho about 85 miles from where she started. So Deer 139 became the focus of this film project, and Sam, the the scientist, teamed up with two of her good friends, uh, Tennessee Watson and Anya Tyson, and those three women, along with two filmmakers, Morgan Heim and Jamie Dittmar, hiked Deer 139's migration path in the spring and, you know, recorded it all on video and really did kind of learn to see that landscape through a new perspective by walking and her hoof prints and 
experiencing those creeks that are surging with spring runoff and the big snow fields up in the mountains and the, you know, the miles and miles of sagebrush and barbed wire fences and the downfall timber. And that, uh, that documentary is now in the final stages of post-production. And I, I have been sort of helping from the sidelines with some fundraising and outreach and, um, coordinating the edits and all of that stuff. Um, and we're pretty excited for the film to be complete later this year. And, um, I don't know exactly when it'll be available online, but we're going to submit it to a few festivals and try to show it at some screenings in Wyoming. And eventually it'll be up on the internet for everyone to watch. That's um, awesome. And and when that thing, when it comes out or when it's getting ready to, if, if I can help at all, or if anybody, you or anybody else wants to come on and talk about it to promote it, just let me know. Cause, um, I can talk about that stuff all day, but it looks the great. trailer, the trailers online. I'll, I'll put a link to that on the webpage for this podcast so people can check it out. But it looks, it kind of combines everything I'm interested in, like ultra endurance with wildlife, <laughs> with the West. It's really like the, the perfect film. Um, how, so how was that as a, as a, as a writer and, and a creative, how is it focusing in on, on the film side of things for a while? Has that been fun? Oh, definitely. Yeah. It's been a real treat and such a joy to work with such talented filmmakers in Mo and Jamie who brought this like beautiful artistic eye and a real sense of how to do storytelling through the medium of film. And part of the goal with that project is to reach an adventure film audience yeah. with a science and conservation message that might be new to some of them mm -hmm. about connected landscapes and the value of those to the wild animals that we love to see in the backcountry. Um, and one of my takeaways from watching the rough cut of the film and seeing some of the footage they got is that it's just this really beautiful portrait of a part of the world that looks like nowhere else on earth between the, the sagebrush and the aspen glades and the, um, yeah, the craggy peaks and everything. It's, it's so cool to have all that footage from their exact hike brought together into one portrait of this incredible landscape. That's such a treasure to have in this part of the world. Well, it, I really think that films like that are, there's a huge opportunity to make advocates out of just people who, who want to be entertained. Because if you think about a guy I've had on the podcast a while back named Ben Masters, and he made this film called Unbranded, where they, mm -hmm. I don't know if you've seen that, but he, they, yeah, um, yeah they, they adopt wild Mustangs and ride them from Mexico to Canada. And that movie, you know, it's an entertaining, fun movie to watch, but I think a, a byproduct of it, or a, not even a byproduct, the product is all these people who had no idea about wild Mustangs now all of a sudden have an opinion about them and they're engaged <laughs> in that, in that, uh, you know, kind of battle either on, on one side or the other, but it's cool that uh, a fun, something that's fun to watch and is entertaining can really change people's perspectives on things. And I, I think that's, I, I don't think a lot of people understand these migrations. And so a film like this is a perfect way to introduce it. So that's, I'm glad you're doing that. That's awesome. Yeah. It, it's been such a delight to work on that project. And I, the three characters, the three women who do the hike are, 
they're just awesome. They're so funny and they're so comfortable in the backcountry. And I think uh, viewers will really find them endearing and <laughs> get a kick out of their story and learn something along the way. That's sure. the key. That, I mean, that's the key is not that I'm an expert filmmaker, but people are interested in people. And so if you can highlight these, these funny, cool, interesting people and who are doing something about a certain issue, it, it's, it works every time. I mean, I mean, that's yeah. a lot of this, this podcast is just talking to these individuals like you or, and everybody else who are doing interesting work. And because their individual story is so great, it makes people interested in the bigger issues. And it also makes people mm-hmm. less likely to get mad about certain issues because they see there's like an actual person behind this, these ideas, you know? Um, yeah. It's pretty cool. Well, that's, yeah, I can't definitely. wait. Yeah. Keep me in the loop. Cause I, I want, I can't wait to see that film. Okay. Um, and then another project you, you got so much going on. I don't know how you do all this. Um, you're the Western confluence magazine, which I love our mutual friend, Drew Bennett, a professor there at university of Wyoming brought me a copy and I read the entire thing and it's, it's awesome. And so can you talk a little bit about that, uh, that project? Yeah, I do kind of communications and outreach work for the Ruckles House Institute of Environment and Natural Resources here at the University of Wyoming. And the main piece of that is this Western Confluence magazine. We do one or two issues a year and it focuses on natural resource and science and management in the Western United States. And the idea is that there's a lot of really exciting, interesting research around natural resource challenges happening at the University of Wyoming and other schools and institutes around the West. And a lot of those ideas and discoveries end up in the peer-reviewed literature where they kind of get buried and are not necessarily accessible to people who might be able to put some of those ideas to use on the ground. So the goal of the magazine is to bridge some of that work out to people who can take those ideas and discoveries and run with them. And each issue of the magazine is shaped around a different theme. So the last one that came out last winter was about public lands. And we were just trying to explore, especially sort of human relationships to public lands and what they mean to the nearby communities and the people who use those public lands for uh, recreation and hunting and um what, yeah, just what it means to have access to public lands as a citizen of the West. And then the issue we're working on right now is about invasive species on Western landscapes, which is a really challenging topic that's on the lot on a lot of people's minds. I know the Western Governors Association has an initiative focused on what to do about invasive species in our landscapes. And uh, it's a focus for the governor of Wyoming as well. So uh, hopefully we can shed some light on some of the challenges and opportunities and research around that issue through the magazine as well. Do you consider us humans an invasive species? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Certainly, if you think about it very carefully, that's the only conclusion you can come to. (laughs) Um, Well, and, and it's... Correct me if I'm wrong, but it's free to subscribe to, right? Like if you go to the website and sign up, it's free, right? You'll That's send it. That's right. Yep. I it's, highly encourage everybody to, as long as it's it works for you guys and doesn't mess up your funding. Um, if if no. I, I encourage people to check it because it is, 
it's it's beautifully laid out like your your graphic design and everything is just is just amazing but then the the content is as detailed as one could hope without going just so far into academia that it puts you to sleep i mean it's it's really really amazing i I can't believe um, – I hope it, it spreads far and wide because it, it, there's a real need for that, what you're doing with that. Yeah, thanks. And we certainly love to get all the subscribers we can. And one thing that's neat about keeping it free is we do send it out to all the state legislators and the county planning departments and folks like that who – we think might benefit from some of the ideas that are presented in the magazine. So I, I think that's a really cool feature of it. And who funds that? Who are some, you mentioned some funders, uh, who, who are the main funders? I mean, I, I guess obviously university of Wyoming, but are there any foundations that are in on this? We've gotten support for the magazine from the Walton family foundation and the Ordway foundation mm-hmm. as well. And um, basically the way it works right now is we we do a lot of fundraising for the Ruckles House Institute of Environment and Natural Resources and for the Haub School that it's it's part of. And we try to connect people who might be interested in the magazine um, with it directly. And sometimes we get sort of large discretionary gifts that can be directed toward the magazine as well. Um, so it's kind of piecing it together issue to issue and trying to reach out to folks who who care about that kind of communication. Well, I'll, I'll put a link to it, obviously, on the notes so people can sign up because it's, it's very, very well done. Um, Thanks. Well, thinking about all these different creative projects you've you've got going on that combine, you know, obviously a, a lot of um, skill in writing, but then also a lot of understanding and deep understanding of ecology and science and large-scale land management – when who are some of your mentors? I mean, who who do you look to as a as positive influences in this career you've carved out for yourself? Because it's so unique. I mean, are there any any people that come to mind that have kind of guided your your career? And you don't have to know them; they could yeah. be dead or alive. You know, just some of the people <laughs> you've admired from a distance. Yeah, there there certainly have been a lot of influences over the years to my my interest in the field of this kind of storytelling. I would. You know, I'd cite Joe Reese, the photographer I worked with on the pronghorn migration project, who really uh, understood the value of telling these stories and felt like it was a a serious enough project to dedicate so much time and energy toward. Um, And it was just, you know, such a treat to work with such a talented photographer on that type of project. Um, I, I would also mention the so right after graduate school, I did an internship at High Country News for a year, yep. and that's really where I learned to write. I had done a lot of writing before that, but I didn't know how to write. Yeah. And I really credit the editors who I worked with there, especially Sarah Gilman and Callie Carswell and Jody Peterson, Stephanie Ogburn, Michelle Nyhouse. There are some really smart people there who were such huge mentors to me who just transformed the way I think about crafting a story and developing a narrative arc and uh, making sentences that are clear and interesting and, and all of that. That was a huge learning experience to me that I didn't even know I needed until I was in the midst of it. Um, 
They're great. I had Brian Calvert, who's now the editor in chief on the podcast mm-hmm. a while back. And I went to the high country news office there in Peonia. And I was like really nervous when I walked in because oh, these, <laughs> these people are the best. And here I am with a, a laptop. I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> they really are the best. They're they are so the best. Amazing. I mean, they're, they're yeah. great. Well, you can, that, that influence definitely, it makes sense with all everything you've gone on to do. I mean, that, that, that makes perfect sense that you've, you were with them. Um, that's cool. Any, any like historical people that, that you've like read their biography and admire or anything like that? I have always been really drawn to authors who are exploring connections between people and landscape and the animals that call those landscapes home. Mm-hmm. So I'm thinking of stories like, uh, Peter Matheson's book, the snow leopard. Oh yeah. And, uh, Let's see. Norman McLean's A River Runs Through It comes to mind as a story about people and landscape. Um, Karsten Hewer, who I mentioned earlier, wrote a book, Being Caribou, about his adventures in the caribou migration corridor. And uh, one of my favorite stories ever is by a writer named Joe Hutto called Illumination in the Flatwoods. And Joe has moved to Wyoming and written some books about Wyoming, but Illumination in the Flatwoods is set in Georgia, and it's about uh, him raising a clutch of wild turkey eggs, and it's a very zen book about everything he learned about life from those little turkeys. It's oh, that's pretty, cool. That's pretty really amazing. Cool. I'll link to those. Um, um, that's awesome. Yeah. Well, one book we ne- we definitely need to discuss is Wild Migrations. Can you talk a little bit about that and, and your role in that book? Because I, I haven't read it. I need to. Um, but I've I've looked at it and there's some really good samples of some of the illustrations and maps and that kind of thing online. Can you can you just talk about that book? Because it looks super interesting. Yeah. Wild Migrations is a book that just came out last year. And I've been working on it here at the University of Wyoming for about five years with a really crackshot team of wildlife biologists and then some cartographers from the University of Oregon, actually. And it's a big coffee table book, 200 pages, full color. And every every page spread in the book tells a migration science story about the deer, elk, moose, pronghorn, bighorn, sheep, bison that migrate in the greater Yellowstone area and in Wyoming. And so it's, it's a, a book that takes all these new discoveries that have been happening in the recent years about wildlife migration and how it works and putting them into visual and storytelling format so that they don't get lost in the peer reviewed literature that they, those stories and that understanding is available to the public. And, um, it's, it's really the only source for a lot of this information because it's so new. Um, and the, the book is divided into five sections that explore um, kind of the, the ecology of migration, the history of these migratory species on our landscapes, how the science is done, mm-hmm. and then the, the threats to the migrations on our landscape and the conservation efforts that are starting to take shape. So it's really comprehensive. It's got hundreds and hundreds of maps, which I think are just beautiful. And can I can pour over some of those maps for hours. I think they're so fun to stare at and kind of imagine the animals making these paths through the landscape and 
what they're seeing along the way and kind of figuring out the patterns that they're following and everything. Um, and yeah, just such a treat to work on a project like that with folks who really know what they're talking about. And, and my role in it was to, to help with all the, the language on the pages to make sure it didn't slip too far into scientific <laughs> jargon and that the terms and ideas would be clearly communicated and also presented in a compelling way. Um, that's a very yeah. important role. I do a lot of work with, <laughs> with water rights and water engineers, and it seems like at every engineering firm, there's one person whose job it is to translate the info from the engineers to the normal people. <laughs> and so yeah, that is a, a without that person, nothing happens. So that's 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 great. Well, yeah, I look forward to to really digging in, into that because it looks like just a, a resource that you could refer back to for decades. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think anyone who's curious about how, how animals move around these landscapes will find it pretty interesting. So one more question about your career, and I bet you get this question a lot, but when young people who are either in college or grad school and they come to you and they say, I want a, I want a career like you, I want to do all this cool stuff, how, <laughs> how do I do it? What, what is your answer to them? Well, I do feel like more than ever, sort of as we were just talking about, there's a role for communicators who know how to tell stories about science in today's world. And a lot of universities are trying to develop um, outreach and communication efforts around the science that's happening there. And even like the National Science Foundation is making broader impacts a more important part of the grants they give. So I see communication, storytelling, film production, podcasting, all of these things as a really important bridge between the critical scientific research that's happening and the public understanding and in some cases conservation or other efforts that can happen in response to that work. And there's only going to be a greater and greater need for that as time as time goes on. So it's definitely a field that exists and that needs people and the scientists have full-time jobs already. Sometimes they can do their own outreach and communication, but it doesn't hurt to have professionals who know how to translate science and get to the bottom of those stories and put them into a compelling format for wide audiences. Um, So I guess the first thing is it's a field that exists and that needs smart people who are passionate about this kind of work. Would you recommend, it sounds like you probably would recommend internships like your one at at High Country News, just somewhere where you get thrown into the deep end and have to, to figure out how to do it. I mean, is, was that, that sounds like it was a valuable step for you. Yeah, definitely. The High Country News internship is fairly unusual because the interns write lots of stories that go to the website and magazine. And um, I think some magazine internships don't have interns involved quite so hands-on. So that one is particularly valuable, but any kind of similar experience where you can, like you say, just get thrown into it and start doing it is the best way to learn and the best way to make connections and start to understand the field. That High Country News that is a thread that runs through so many people who are doing 
really interesting work in the West. Like, for example, Pete McBride, the, the National Geographic photographer and filmmaker, um, that's where he got his start was High Country News. And it just yeah. it, it shows up in people's resumes right at the at the very beginning of their career a lot. So so we're already at almost an hour, which is nuts. I feel like we just started <laughs> talking. Um, can we run through some quick questions that I ask everybody? And, um, and then I'll let you go on back to your work. Yes, definitely. Um, what are, if you had to pick a few, one or two or three, or as many as you want, really, but what are your favorite books just about the, the American West in general? Yeah, well, I kind of mentioned a, a couple books when we were talking yeah. about the connections between people and landscapes and animals. Yeah. Um, there's a few others that I just keep going back to every few years on my shelf. The Meadow by James Galvin, which yeah. is set right here close to Laramie where I live right now. It's maybe one of them. I love Ivan Doig's memoir, this house of house of sky about sheep ranching in Montana. Yep. Um, Laura Bell has a beautiful memoir claiming ground about Wyoming and just those kind of personal stories that show how special the landscape is here and, and have a little human intrigue are the, the ones I can't put down, the ones I just keep circling back to over and over. And you may have already named it, but what do you have a favorite book of all time? For a while, I was saying that Illumination in the Flatwoods, the turkey book, yeah, <laughs> was my favorite of all time. I need to read so that. I, might, I might stick with that. I think it's pretty compelling. <laughs> this is going to be a really good episode for people to refer to the webpage because there's going to be a ton of books. And so yeah. go and check them out, people listening. Um, what are your favorite documentaries or films? Do any come to mind? You know, I was thinking of that unbranded film that you mentioned by Ben Masters. I thought that was really a compelling story. Um, we here at the University of Wyoming, we host two free nights of the mountain film tour oh, cool. yeah. every year. And that that's my favorite place to hear new stories. And um, there's just always something surprising and exciting and inspiring at the mountain film tour. And they, you know, list all their films on their website too. So that's, that's my main source of movie watching, I would say. <laughs> and so I bet you'll have a good answer to this in all your outdoor adventures and traveling around. Is there one experience that comes to mind as being the most powerful outdoor experience you've ever had? And that could be scary. It could be funny. Um, just a, a memorable experience. Is Is there any one thing that pops in your head? I was thinking about this and it, you know, I have been so fortunate throughout my life to go on a lot of really amazing outdoor adventures and have some incredible experiences canoeing in the Arctic and canoeing in the desert Southwest and climbing around Wyoming, um, summiting the Grand Teton and all kinds of, all kinds of stuff like that. But I think one experience that was the most powerful to me was when I was an undergrad at University of Wyoming working for the outdoor program. We did this kind of summer camp for kids who were um, either first generation potential college students or lower income who uh, many of whom had never camped before. And we would take them on like a two or three night backpacking trip with a rock climbing section at the end of it. And I remember just working with one girl who was really scared of climbing, but really determined. And she stuck with it for like hours and got up this climb. And it, I could just see it sort of transform, 
transform her self-confidence and the way she saw the world. And I'd say that was probably the most powerful experience I could point my finger to. Yeah, that's a good one. I mean, that changed her life, you know, that's, uh, yeah. I think, and I think everybody's had a, everybody who does this kind of outdoor stuff has a personal experience where they kind of turned a corner like that. So to be able to play a role in that, that's, that's really mm-hmm. cool. Um, mm-hmm. If you had to pick one, what is your favorite location in the West? And it could be a town, a lake, trail, top of a mountain, anywhere. It's hard. I can't, well, I don't have an answer to that. And I ask everybody. Yeah. I I have a few r- really favorite spots that are secrets. Yeah. Don't, don't, <laughs> don't tell anybody those. <laughs> but one I thought I might mention is there's a piece of land just on the east side of Laramie. Uh, we refer to as Pilot Hill and it's a private ranch, but there are some discussions going on right now to transfer it to the state and make it a, a public state park. Cool. And I'm just really excited about that. I, you know, it's a place that so many folks from Laramie could access from their back door without having to get in the car and it connects up to a unit of the national forest and it's going to have really incredible trails on it. And it's such symbolically, it's just so cool to think about this kind of closed off sort of struggling piece of private land that didn't have a clear purpose becoming a state park that could be so beneficial in so many people's lives. I'm really excited about that project. Man, that's really cool. I mean, that has the potential to really transform some stuff there, you know, as far as uh, just immediate access to recreation. That's great. Yeah, definitely. It's cool. Um, Here's one. What is the best piece of advice you've ever received? There was a presentation here at the University of Wyoming a few years ago by a woman named Stephanie Fearman, who's a scientist, and she was talking about you know, having a career in the sciences and how to make it as a woman in academia and everything. And one thing she said that really stuck with me was just done is better than perfect. And that's something I needed to hear. And (laughs) I think it's helped me get through a lot of things I might not have ever finished by worrying about perfection before. So I think that's the best piece of advice that I've received in the last while. <laughs> I need to write that over my computer, especially when I'm working on these, any the creative stuff. Cause I can just, I can go so deep into a hole and yeah. just get so hung up and you just got to get it out there, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's never going to be perfect. Yeah. And done is important. <laughs> and so knowing everything, you know, about all the issues facing the West from these, you know, animal migrations to the different natural resources, uh, kind of tug of wars that are going on on some of these for land use and that kind of thing. If you had to, if you could make a request of the people listening to this podcast or ask or offer some words of wisdom or offer them some advice, does anything come to mind? Yeah, it can be pretty overwhelming when we think about the state of the world and the state of the American West and the challenges that the planet is facing and that human civilization is facing. And I think something that I try to keep in mind when I get so overwhelmed by all of that is to just try to make the circle of space around me where I exist the best it can be. And that means make choices that make the world I can touch a little bit more clean and healthy and positive and secure and beautiful. Um, And I always like to return to Mary Oliver and, uh, 
her her poem the wild geese where she says just let the soft animal of your body love what it loves and then also her poem the the summer day where she asks what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life and those are some lines i i try to keep in mind when i'm wrestling with the world we live in and the challenges we face those are great. That's a that's a great way to to end it. That was that was really really perfect. Well, how can people learn more about you? Learn more about your work. All these different projects you have going on. If you had to send them to one or two spots on the internet, I have a website that's just my name, Emily Ostland, where I've posted some of the articles I've written, and um, and then the Ruckles House Institute of Environment and Natural Resources, where I currently work, has more information about things like the Deer 139 documentary and the Wild Migrations book and Western Confluence magazine. So those might be some places to look at. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. This was super interesting. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Ed. It's a pleasure to talk with you and thanks for doing your podcast. I love listening to it. Hey, it's Ed again. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast and thanks for listening to that particular episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Before you go, I've got three quick things. Number one, if you like the podcast, please do me a huge favor. Either pass it along to a friend who may be interested, share it on your social media, and or go to iTunes and give it a five-star review. All those things would mean a lot to me, and they would really help to spread the word about the podcast. Number two, if you've listened to many of these episodes, you know that I love reading and I love talking about books. Every other month, I send out a quick email with a few books that I've recently read and highly recommend. The subjects are varied, but they're pretty much all nonfiction with an emphasis on history, biographies, adventure narratives, and topics related to the American West. There are no sales pitches for ranches, no spam, no other kind of nonsense, just books. So if you'd like to sign up for the list, head to Mountain and Prairie slash reading, or just go to Mountain and Prairie and there's a massive tab at the top that says book recommendations. Click on it. There are a ton of good books that I've read. Some of the old email lists are on there. Uh, You can go crazy. There are a lot of books. And finally, if you know anyone I should interview for the podcast, please don't hesitate to reach out and let me know. All my contact info is at mountainandprairie.com, and I'm on all the social media stuff, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, blah, blah, blah. So feel free to reach out. I'd love to have some recommendations and suggestions of interesting people I should meet. All right, that's it. Thanks for listening. Talk to you soon.